Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast, episode 76, the one about Elon Musk buying Twitter, Web3 glossaries, marketing decluttering and the film Passengers. Let's get on with the show. Hello, hello, and welcome to another recording of Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. We are back with more news, tech content, and wisdom from the world of marketing. Joining me, a man on a mission to keep marketing simple, the voice of the marketing and finance podcast, and the author of Catsmat and Marketing Plans, I give you Monsieur Roger Edwards. Well, thank you so much. And as always, I'm also joined by a man who is also on a mission, this time to demystify digital marketing. He's the host of the Content Marketing Studio video podcast. Please welcome Monsieur Pascal Fintoni. Thank you very much, everyone. This is episode number 76. And Roger, you have chosen yet again an outstanding movie for film marketing. Yeah, we are going to talk about Passengers, a really, really good science fiction film starring Jennifer Lawrence and Chris Pratt. I can't wait to get into talking about this one, Pascal. Yeah, and we're going to do actually something we've not done for a while. We're going to be deep diving into the poster design and trailer montage as well, you know, and I just can't wait. It's a great, great selection. And once again, this is such enjoyable, you know, to do this podcast, but we're not the only one enjoying it. We receive regularly thank you messages. So listen, this is all your fault. You know, Roger and I keep going because we are enjoying the, the process of production, but also we get some thank yous. To begin with, we had Liam Hefferman and his colleague Ian Pinnell from the Hospital Broadcasting Association saying thank you so much for the coverage and we also got a little thumbs up thank you for the lovely mention that's very kind smiley face christopher offman lausen from denmark got in touch to say thank you for featuring my article on customer journey mapping thumbs up and smiley faces yeah and robin allen uh, who i spoke about last week and her amazing iphone video she said thank you so much for the shout out and to think that was on an iphone 11 i didn't know that robin i've just upgraded to the 13 she says wonder what i could do with this bad boy awesome podcast as always and helen packham as well thank you so much she says thanks so much for the mention roger i look forward to listening to the episode so thank you for taking the time to giving us your feedback because as pascal says it's the the feedback that keeps us going as well as all the really interesting films that we talk about and all the marketing <laughs> tech and all the content as well of course now and for everyone on the socials don't forget to suggest articles content and films you'd like us to react to we also have the speak pipe account where you can leave a voice message go for speakpipe.com forward slash two geeks and a marketing podcast we're going to do something even more special today with in the news just after this it's official. On the 25th of April, the board of directors at Twitter accepted Elon Musk's offer of $44 billion for the social media platform. And this is only two weeks after he became its majority shareholder. Now, Elon Musk already heads Tesla, SpaceX, The Boring Company, and Neuralink, and he has been sharing surprising company plans, bizarre claims, uncredited memes, and the occasional accusations since 2009 to his 87.2 million Twitter followers. The result is the odd combination tweets about international space stations and this recent message, next I'm biking, buying Coca-Cola to put the cocaine back in. Well, Aaron Wu from the New York Times wrote, whilst the transaction isn't expected to close for three to six months, Mr. Musk did not hesitate to start making his feelings known about Twitter's executive on Twitter. The Guardian reported that Elon Musk has the following changes in mind, defeating spam bots, 
having human authentication, does that mean we're all going to get blue ticks? An edit button, wow, we've all been asking for that. Open sourced algorithms and what he says will be free speech. According to Australian lobby group Digital Rights Watch, Elon Musk's style of free speech absolutism will tilt the scales in favour of the rich and powerful who can silence or bully critics. A week ago, former Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey shared that Twitter as a company has always been my sole issue and my biggest regret. It has been owned by Wall Street and the ad model. Taking it back from Wall Street is the correct first step. And finally, in a recent public talk, Elon Musk stated that having a public platform that is maximally trusted and broadly inclusive, extremely important to the future of civilization. I don't care about the economics at all. My goodness. Can I ask you a question about Elon Musk, Pascal? Mm -hmm. This guy is absolutely swimming in money. He's the richest man in the world. Yeah. He, he, he builds space rockets. He's got all of this incredible technology. He wants to build a fast sort of tube system under Los Angeles. Do you think he's actually got a hollowed out volcano somewhere and he's got a great big leather chair that he sits in stroking a white cat? I think you should mention that there's been people actually putting links to the Wikipedia Bonds Villains page saying that <laughs> somebody is missing. That's a true thing. Um, I'm like you. I'm just perplexed as to... So to begin with, for our viewers and listeners, clearly we're doing a special on Twitter and Elon Musk in case you're, you're being confused about the approach. And my position is, why would someone like him be interested in a essentially failing social network? It's a it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, his it it's like everything. You can find articles to to support your viewpoint, but the general trend or the general uh, discussion topic is that he feels that free speech is being limited on Twitter and that people are closed down. I mean, you know, they've banned President Trump from Twitter because of his insightful. Uh, comments. I mean, you know, President Trump was almost inciting riots in in America, wasn't he? Or he was inciting riots, and they closed him down for that. And, and Elon Musk seems to have a problem with curtailing of free speech. But it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because I'm not pr particularly sure it's a good thing to be inciting riots and violence in America. Wh whether they should have closed him down for good, I don't know. But it, it does free speech mean that people can say whatever they like, whether it's nasty or or not? I, I don't know what his angle is here, Pascal. Well, it had to clarify his position on Twitter, clearly. There's been some recent posts where he says, you know, whatever free speech is within the law of that particular country, which has been the real challenge for all the platforms. Now, you and I have been reporting in the news around this idea of the bill, you know, to make the internet safer in Europe and in the UK. I believe there was a discussion only last week in the UK about getting the final kind of paragraph tagged up whereby platform like Twitter will be held accountable for allowing people to essentially incite violence or to share fake news that leads to people being harmed or even threatening, which is interestingly, you know, for me, has been this weird position by the platform they've taken saying, it's not our fault, we're only uh, publishers, but actually you can, for example, uh, Roger, go out in the streets of Edinburgh and shout and accuse people of something or even threaten them. You'd be arrested and this, this is a crime, but oddly, it's not yet a crime fully to do this on the internet. Mm. 
No, it, it's it's really strange, and and as you say, every country has its own definition of free speech. I mean, obviously in China and Russia, you know, you're not really allowed to say anything without being arrested. Um, whereas other countries uh, do let you within the law say what you like. So, uh, you know, he's going to be spending a lot of his remaining billions on working out how to actually implement what he wants to implement, I think. Indeed. And I think for me, the, the, the challenge with um, the brand, the personal brand that, that is Elon Musk, he uses Twitter a lot for irony and, mm -hmm. and humor, which is always misunderstood because of the limitation of the, um, the written word. So you read out about the thing that he's going to buy Coca-Cola to put the cocaine back in. I know that he's trying to get a rise out of people because he's amused by it. But um, then on one hand, he's responsible for sending people safely into space to the International Space Station. So that the whole thing is is um, really controversial, is an anomaly for people. But if we focus on the potential positive and negative impact of running a business and a marketing campaign on Twitter, when you think about what he's trying to do, defeating spam bots, I, I approve, having human authentication. So this idea of no more anonymity. So back to your point about sharing you know, bad news or th being threatening or, or, or accusation, which I just have no, no kind of proof and so on. That's something that certainly many, many uh, kind of groups around the, the world have been asking for because that is the beginning of criminal activities to hide behind a pseudonym. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of uh, people who do hide behind their uh, anonymity, don't they, on, on all social media, keyboard warriors. And, and as a result, they can be as nasty and as scathing as they like. Um, now, again, if, if, if you take the, the logical conclusion forward, um, he's, it's, it's almost as if his, his focus on free speech is, is saying that's okay. But maybe if people haven't got the anonymity, maybe they wouldn't risk being as scathing and, and nasty uh, in, in in that sort of environment. I I've, I also agree with the authentication thing as well. I mean, at the moment, it's a sort of coveted thing, isn't it, to get a Twitter blue tick? Mm. Um, and funnily enough, they've recently introduced some new rules. Um, and, and, and I applied for it just to see what would happen because there's now a new creator's uh, uh, category that you can apply for a blue tick uh, and after about an instant I've, I typed in my details it came back and said I didn't meet the criteria because I haven't got enough followers or something like that but in my mind the blue tick is supposed to just prove that you are who you are now I'm more than happy to send them a copy of my passport or my driving license and that should all that should be all it needs so I do sort of actually agree with this authentic thing for both reasons a stopping the keyboard warriors hiding behind their anonymity but also if i am who i am and i am and i know who i am then i should have a blue tick to uh, as easy as it possibly could be now the edit button is the one that he almost used as a, as a way <laughs> in when he became the majority sh um, shareholder uh, it's interesting because I think that because there isn't an edit function on Twitter, I'm more careful. I mean, I read my tweet three or four times before I press post or publish. So I don't think it's, for me, a game changer. The one that has been fascinating is around this idea, which is the last item I read very quickly, this idea of I don't care about the economics at all. And people will be saying, so what it's going to do is going to literally 
fire everybody working for Twitter advertising. So there'd be no need for adverts. So the whole kind of ad team, business team, is going to be gotten rid of. This has led to a lot of tweets and speculation online. Uh, but again, I don't see that many adverts on Twitter, so I'm not that bothered. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, on Facebook, um, even on LinkedIn, but mainly on, on things like Instagram, you, you get adverts thrown at you all the time, don't you? And sometimes they are intrusive and they're really annoying. But like you, I, I can't remember the last time I saw a Twitter advert, or, or even if I did, it blended in so nicely with the feed that I, I didn't really notice it. But is it, I mean, he's so rich. I mean, I, I just can't get my head around him. The, the size of this fortune that this guy has. I mean, it's just silly money, isn't it? Silly telephone numbers uh, of zeros after the the number. But I mean, if he can, if he thinks he can afford to run this without the ad revenue, then then good luck to him. But it's uh, it's it's going to be a, a bit of a, a capital drain, isn't it? But also that there are some companies and brands where advertising is the right way to communicate, mm -hmm. you know, with mm -hmm. your with your audience. I find it interesting um, when I picked up this one from Jack Dorsey saying it is time to claim the company back from the Wall Streets, and uh -huh. you kind of go maybe maybe the biggest problem has been that they liked vision as a board, they liked mm -hmm. obviously understanding what it means to run the social media platform. Because my kind of uh, wish list would include, for example, a very um, easy-to-use dashboard a la Canva, Stroke, Facebook, or Meta Business Suite, now it's called, where you could create carousel, you could create videos, you could do a number of things to add to you know the interest and engagement mm -hmm. and also mm -hmm. continue what they're doing with regard to live streaming, whether it's video and audio. Yeah, no, it's... Uh, I guess that what we will find out the true reason for this once he gets himself installed and whether he is sat there stroking his his white cat um, and and uh, sitting in his uh, hollowed out volcano or whether he genuinely has got some great ideas and and he and he turns it into an even better force for good uh, but but some of them you know he, he talks about it being like the world's town square doesn't he where all the all the most important conversations are happening. I mean, I, I don't see that. I, I've always just thought that that Twitter's almost like a virtual pub. Uh, you know, you go in there, you talk to your friends, you make other friends, and you share things. Um, but I'm not sure it's it's going to be the hub where decisions about the future of the planet are made, unless, of course, he is sitting there stroking his white cat. No. Maybe that, that's what he thinks that that is the ultimate aim for it. For me, just to kind of um, close on that, uh, I would left wondering this morning as I was thinking about recording our conversation whether this is also of interest only to a small minority of tech marketing stroke, you know, social media buffins, and that for the rest of the world, this is either something that they have no kind of comprehension, even interest in. And yeah, it's just a very rich person getting into the world of media, as many others have done before him. And it'll be, as I've heard people say, a storm in a teacup. Yeah, I mean, we should we should remember that you and I we're, we're into this. It's part of our career. We do it because we have clients who rely upon our expertise in the social media and digital marketing landscape. But for a massive selection of the of the population, they don't get twitter they don't they're not interested in twitter i think 
many under probably under 35s maybe even under 40s aren't on twitter you know there aren't they aren't on facebook they're on they're on um tiktok and, and snapchat still so may, maybe yeah maybe we're making too much out of this but let let's come back uh in what will probably be the episode 120 or something like that of two gigs the marketing podcast and see what the guy has done when he's installed white cat or not no absolutely uh so everyone using listeners i hope you've kind of enjoyed this kind of new format taking a single news item and covering it across many different platforms and giving you our reactions as, as it is. And yes, I'm sure Twitter and Elon Musk will make the entry many a time uh, on the news item, but then when, once there is a big change, we'll get back to you. But um, let's slow things down, if you don't mind, um, Roger, with the content spotlights. Now, this is the segment where Roger and I share a discovery from the interweb, a podcast, a video, an article. So what have you got for us this week, Roger? Okay, before I introduce the article I want to talk about, Pascal, I want to read you something out, which I've actually got here on my phone. So I want you to tell me what this means, i.e. I want you to translate it. So here we go. Are you interested in DeFi? We've investigated a few new paradigms for in-game economies and realized that a bottom-up build is the only way to achieve economic interoperability. Top-down is too tradfi. If you want to string together multiple transactions, including beyond baseball card NFT minting, then that approach both on and off-chain at both a DAO and wallet level is the only way forward. Can you translate that for me? I think they're saying they're going to ask people what they want, but my goodness, I was exhausting just trying to keep up with it. <laughs> this is the language of Web3, Pascal. This is the language of Web3. Now, I, I, I'm wrestling with this. We have talked about NFTs before. We've talked about the metaverse. And, and Web3 is all of that together, isn't it? It also includes cryptocurrency. And... It's a, it, there's so much talk about it and there's so much hype and there's a lot of people out there who are investing a lot of money into the future of the internet. And like we've just said with our chat about Twitter, we really owe it to our customers to try and understand what's going on. So I, I felt I had to make a really big effort to try and understand a little bit more about this thing called Web3. But my problem is... Is things like that that I've just read out absolute and utter gobbledygook jargon and management speak? Now, as you know, I have led a career-long fight against the use of jargon, gobbledygook, and management speak. And I don't think ever in my 25 years of trying to do this, Pascal, have I come across an industry which is so absolutely over-the-top gobbledygook, over-the-top jargon as all of this Web3 stuff. In fact, I follow a few people on um, LinkedIn who frequently post about this thing, this stuff. And honestly, sometimes these posts, when I read them, I think, are you actually trolling people? Are you genuinely... Is this a genuine question? Is this a genuine post? Is this a genuine article? Or are you actually just taking the proverbial piss and just putting a load of jargon on a page and seeing what sort of reaction you'll get. Because I have to admit, Pascal, that what I just read out to you, to me, just felt like 
a stringing together of all the Web3 jargon. So the starting point for all of this is to find somebody who can actually tell you what DeFi means and what DAOs are and what on-chain and off-chain means and what in-wallet or out-of-wallet means. Now, I did a bit of a search, and there are quite a few, as you would expect, articles, uh, podcasts, and, of course, videos out there. The one that I've homed in on and there were probably two that I could have chosen, but I've chosen this one because it's actually the shortest of the two. It's a glossary, all the terms you need to gear up for Web3 by Harry Guinness for Senior Executive Magazine. And, and literally, the article is just taking you through and telling you what these terminologies mean. So DeFi is decentralized finance, DeFi. And effectively what we're saying is we live in a centralized finance world at the moment money's own you know controlled by big banks and by government and web3 in cryptocurrency is effectively putting finance into the hands of people like you and me into the individuals that's why they call it decentralized finance it gives it back to people and these 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 jargons once you actually start to get into the definitions of them a lot of it does start to make sense and i actually think yeah do you know maybe i've been a little bit too scathing of this over the uh, you know the last few years as we started talking about this and now that i start to understand the language i can actually start to understand where things are going you know a dao you know what on earth's a dao a dao is a decentralized autonomous organization which again is just the opposite of what you and i would understand as a big corporate so a big corporate has a big boss at the top ceo it'll have a c suite then it'll have a whole series of managers and hierarchy going all the way down to the the workers a decentralized or auto- autonomous organization is completely different it doesn't have a hierarchy it's owned by the people who work there and controlled by the people who work there and they they all do it through rules that they put together themselves. Now, that sounds to me as if it could be a, uh, you know, ca- very chaotic and very um, um, meandering. You know, not doesn't have a purpose, but these people seem to think it works. So, I'm not really going to say much more than that. That I think that one of the problems that Web three has is not the fact that it's early in its uh, in its gestation and at the moment we're not quite sure where the metaverse is going to head and we're not quite sure what NFTs are really for. What I think is the biggest problem with all of this is the language is so jargoned, jargonified, it's so full of gobbledygook, it's so full of management speak that that itself has become the barrier to a lot of people taking a closer look at this. So I guess my fight to, you know, push back against this sort of thing isn't going to stop anytime soon. If anything, it's going to have to ramp up because, my goodness, there's some incredibly, incredibly complicated language out there. And you've got to ask the question why that is the case because if you're truly passionate about what you're doing and you believe that you have the answers to many problems, your desire to be understood by your audience, who is not as expert as you are, should be actually driving your communications efforts. But you're absolutely right. Um, 
as you know, and listeners of yours will know that I specialised in digital marketing and have been plagued with this problem for the last 20, 30 years now. I started with websites, then moved on to my marketing and SEO and social media. And it's kind of, of course, it's going to be suspicious to others if you had to invent a new language because everything you're describing and doing must have some equivalent in kind of normal day-to-day uh, -day language. And why do you feel the need to cover everything you do in, in three-letter acronyms or TLAs, of course. Why do you feel the need to reinvent the way you would name a cooperative or an employee-owned um, company? All, all, all this exists already. You're just having a virtual version of the same. And my position is that as every kind of new or burgeoning kind of industries, they're still under the pressure of being respected by the wider a wider audience, but also to be respected by their peers, and they fall into the trap of jargons and acronyms. Now, don't get me wrong, if you work in a world of science and you are only addressing the need of scientists, then over to you. It's your language, and it's almost like speaking a different language if you go to a different country. But when you are claiming that Web3 is for everyone and you want everyone to take part and... Uh, I, you've got to rethink, you know, what, what you're doing here. Or say to people, the DeFi, which is also known as, in, in a, and you can quite kind of look for the analogies and equivalents in other industries, that will make you a lot more credible and likable, which is all about the need of communication. Yeah, and, and you know, you've, you've hit the nail on the head. Every industry has its own set of words, its own jargon. I mean, I, I always liken it to countries. You know, if you don't speak French and you go to France, and unless people speak to you in English, it's going to be hard for you to understand what people are saying unless you learn the language. And, you know, Web3 has its own language, and at the moment, I think that language is putting people off. But you're right, it, it was the same with SEO. It was the same with the early days of email marketing. It was, the, it was the same when telephones first came along. There would have been jargon that went with it. And it's our job as marketers to cut out that crap complicated language and talk in the language of our customers and at the moment these web3 people are not talking in the language of anybody's you know not even not not just customers anybody and that's why i genuinely think that language is the biggest barrier they currently have no absolutely and just close on that their attempt to be trusted they get the opposite reaction, which is mistrust or doubt. And doubt leads to people delaying making decisions, which is what you and I have been building really our careers on, which is if you communicate well, people make good decisions, they make informed decisions, but they make them more rapidly than saying, hmm, I've just I've not understood a word, or I feel inadequate, or I feel nervous about this individual talking in that manner, uh, I'll pass, or I'll just find ways to politely decline or delay making a decision. Yeah. I have a selection which, as we always do this, don't we, with this uh, this particular um, segment, which runs parallel to your selection. The title is as follows, The Great Marketing Declutter, Reclaiming Your Focus Like a True Thriver. Now, this is a video, actually, as a, in terms of format, sponsored and produced by The Drum. And you have the host, Nina Alderway, from Accenture UK and Ireland, Managing Director, and she's interviewing Dan Sherwood, the Marketing Director of Santander, which I always like sometimes to hear from the big brands and, and their position, because sometimes we can learn either from their kind of mistakes, but also what they're doing currently. And 
Dan Sherwood has been asked about, you know, his reaction to the recent survey done by Accenture and the drum about the great marketing declutter. And it's almost this idea of the last two years have been so demanding, maybe even before, do we need to rethink what we're doing? Now, what do they mean by declutter? Declutter for Dan is about the side of being single-minded about the purpose of your organization and the needs of your customer. As a result of which, you want to focus on fewer things, not more things, and have a smaller number of priorities. But it's also not just about rushing and buying tech to be more productive. He's arguing that, let's be careful, that can actually get in the way, and that's what you need to sometimes declutter. But this idea of investing in the culture and the mindset of your organization, and therefore the declutter is not just around tech, it's also around the people, the process, the product, the promotion, and looking at ways to really make yourself more efficient, because as a result of which, you can be more optimistic about change, more resilient, more have more energy, and in a way, get yourself into a position where you're seeking out change, you're embracing change, as opposed to being the receiving end of change, as we've done for the last two years. So this video is about five minutes, Roger. It's full of good statements and good intention. But I will leave you to enjoy watching the video by following the link and thanking again, you know, Dan and the, the host, you know, and Nina, to just capturing a moment in time where this need to stop what we're doing concentrate on the small number of things and actually get better results for this. But in the video itself, there's a wonderful statement around this idea of being a thriver as a marketer. What does that mean? It means that you have the ability to cut through complexity, Roger. You have the <laughs> resilience literally to face change and the ability to challenge complexity across the marketing function. And we're going to add, judging by what Dan Sherwood said, that this is not just a marketing function. It is across the whole of the organization as we are approaching the mid-year point of 2022. Maybe it is time to look at decluttering your marketing, but also every function in your business. Wow. Do you know, it's interesting. Here's a very um, little snippet about my history that you probably didn't know, Pascal, but it's probably about 22 years ago now, I was working for a big corporate that got taken over by Santander. Uh -huh. And they were one of the most complicated and bureaucratic organizations I've ever come across. In fact, that was one of the reasons that led to me leaving that big corporate and going away to join a startup in, in the same industry. So obviously, Dan Sherwood and the people at Santander have worked a lot over the last 20 years to declutter Santander's bureaucracy. So, so it's really interesting, and I will definitely go and watch that. But it's like I always say, and to quote from Katz, Matz, and Marketing Plans, which I don't do very often on the show, is that, you know, simple is hard to do. That's why so many things are complicated. It actually takes effort to make things simple it's easier to leave things complicated. And again, that ties into the message that we were talking about with Web3. I think they've got to invest in that simplicity in order to, to make it more appealing to more people. And, and, and that applies just as equally to the finance, financial services industry, which of course Santander and Accenture are in, to any industry at all. Try to keep it simple and you will be more engaging and your customers will love you more for it. 
What I liked about what Dan Cho was saying is this idea of the impact on the people. Once you go through the declutter as described, suddenly your mindset in terms of optimism about change, your resilience, but the energy to come up with new ideas, but also to deal with what, whatever's coming around the corner, it's there. And therefore, complexity gets in the way of that. So it's not just mm -hmm. like, oh, I need to simplify a few processes and or sometime, you know, get rid of some tech or get some new one in. It's also the very impact on the people working for you, which I think is, is fascinating. And it is, it is possible, Roger, that with the last two years, with particularly working from home, people have been working long hours and maybe taking on more duties, more uh, kind of activities and tasks. And it is the role of the leader to guide the troops through the decluttering so that once again, you can have a clearer alignment between your purpose and organization and the service to your customers. Yeah, absolutely right. Love that. So thank you very much. So we're going to go move on to the next segment, which is marketing, tech, and apps. So, Roger, what have you found to make life easier as a content creator and business owner? Well, this week, I'm not going to talk about travel. I did promise I wasn't going to talk about travel. No, I'm following on from uh, last week's creator shout-out where I talked about Robin Allen uh, creating a video for a, a financial services conference at the last minute purely using her iPhone. And, of course, the week before that, my shout-out was from a person who was sharing how Netflix are perfectly happy for producers to use iPhones to create films because iPhones the cameras are that good. And and just as an aside, Trisha and I did watch a film over, uh, last weekend, which I have since discovered was shot entirely using iPhones. Now, I have to say that when I create the vlogs, the Rog vlogs and the Marketing Make Simple videos, I tend to use proper cameras. I've got a, a DJI Pocket 2, which I use quite extensively these days. I've got a Lumix G85, and I've even got a GoPro. I tend not to use the iPhone unless it's sort of last-minute B-roll or something that I suddenly see, and, and effectively the iPhone is the only thing quite close to hand. But it did prompt me, those those things I've just talked about, to go back and have a look at some of the tech that's out there to support the iPhone. So the first thing that I went back and looked at was an app which I have actually done a shout-out for on Two Geeks in the Marketing podcast way, 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 way back. It was probably episode two or three, and it's called Filmic Pro. And again, it was it was referred to in the, that Netflix um, list of requirements that they, adv they advise you to use Filmic Pro as the app to film on. Now, in the last two years, since the last time I gave it a shout out on the show, they have made some incredible improvements to this um, app. And Pascal, it, it is, it, it's remarkable the amount of control that it gives you over the image. You know, it gives you the, the ability to change the aperture, aperture, the ISO, the focusing, the white balance, the color. You can even color grade within the app. You know, it's got a, a very flat profile or you can have a vibrant profile and you can change all of the settings. It genuinely is giving you all the functionality of one of those gigantic cameras that the BBC would use, you know, a, a genuinely big, proper film, or what we see as a proper film camera, all within the app. And do you know what? It's only £11.99, £11.99. Now, I 
paid that eleven ninety nine many many years ago, and they've never come back asking for any more money. There are a few extra little add ons that you can buy, but I don't particularly need those. So it's remarkable value for money. And honestly, some of the images that you can capture using Filmic Pro, and you just do a little t- tweak to the focusing or a little tweak to the color grading, and it, and it makes the image look so much better. So check out Filmic Pro if you if you use your iPhone to make videos. You know, don't use the Apple sort of pre-installed app. Use Filmic Pro. It's worth that eleven ninety nine. Now we all also know that the iPhone built-in microphone isn't the best, especially if you're out in a noisy environment or especially if you want the camera to be a bit further away from your face. And there are all sorts of remote um, microphones. We've reviewed a few on the on the show before. Rode are pretty good at creating um, remote microphones. But all remote microphones I've seen until I came across this one require you to have like a base, they call it the the base app or the base um, platform, which you usually um, have to uh, plug into the phone or plug into the camera. And then you have the microphone itself, the remote microphone that sits on your lapel or, or on your dress or whatever it is. And obviously the two communicate with each other but it can get a little bit you know if you've got a lot of equipment to carry around you've got to remember you've got to have that base unit and you've got to have the bit that goes um, on on the lapel this particular remote microphone by a company called sabine tech is a bluetooth remote microphone and because it's bluetooth all you need is effectively the thing that you clip onto your lapel or your dress the rest of it communicates with the phone via bluetooth now that means that the range might not be as good as a road mic with the base station and everything, but it's still good for about 20 meters, which isn't bad, Pascal. And again, it, it's a really nice little compact unit. You can, you've got the, uh, the, the, uh, foam that you can put over the top as a windshield there's even a, a fluffier dead cat as as they call it. i don't like the the, the terminology dead cat for often, <laughs> but you know what i mean uh, and and again the, the, it, i've seen various different prices quoted for this but it's around about 70 pounds and the reviews say that the quality is absolutely amazing so if iphone uh, filming is your um, thing i reckon that indispensable Filmic Pro to actually film the stuff and one of these Sabine Tech remote microphones to capture the best sound that you can probably get. Thank you very much. I mean, do you know what? It's always reassuring, satisfying when a brand and an app like Filmic Pro keep improving and adding and developing their their solution. And like you, I've been impressed with the result, but also the fact that professionals even will recommend it, which I think it's a very, very good indication. And I love the way in which, you know, remote microphone technologies has moved on. I mean, this is what you want, talking about decluttering and uh, avoiding friction, as opposed to having a sender receiver and all the things that you and I've had to invest over time. That's one of the frustrations, isn't it, Roger? You and I keep buying things that within months, you know, I supposed with something much, much better every single time. (laughs) So I've been doing some research on about podcast promotion. And I've been wrestling with this challenge, and you and I've discussed um, 
on in the green room, so to speak, this idea of promoting two gigs and multi podcasts by having people using a very different podcasting listening app. You know, we try our very best to list all of them. We try our very best to say, well, you can listen to us on Captivate.fm, the hosting platform, but you could also choose your your own platform. But the challenge is that people then have got to go in, use the search function of a platform. So let's use Stitcher, which is mine. And you've got a typing, you know, two gigs of marketing podcast, but is it true with number two? Is it TWO? You've got all these little barriers and obstacles to get through. Unless you and I go ahead and listeners of yours, you can do the same with your podcast using a platform called P Link HQ, P for podcast. Link and HQ. So all in is sounds like Plink HQ, but it is very much peeling HQ.com. Now what you do, you can open a free account. They also have a chargeable service, which is next to nothing. It's dollars per month where you open the account, you essentially find your podcast episodes and, and show on the different platforms. And it creates a mini web page with all the different podcast listening platforms listed from Apple Podcasts to Amazon to Stitcher to ACAST, to all the others that you can think of. And literally people, all they have to do is type on on the icon of the logo and they will find your show automatically. Hence removing all the carry-on of searching and finding and favoriting and so on. So I'm super impressed with the solution. Once again, it's one of those where I almost wish I thought of it myself, but there we are. Um, it's really helpful. And of course, if you have multiple shows, you can have multiple mini web pages and pointing people to it, which I think is very, very important. So that's the first aspect, the, the kind of before and to be discovered by you know your listeners. But once they get to your website, transcription has been something again that I've been looking at. And I'm not sure how I discovered this platform, but it's called podin.io so pod p-o-d and then d-i-n dot i-o now it will transcribe obviously the audio now you could say to me roger that's not new people have been doing it for quite some time but what they do superbly is in the layout of the transcription and the show notes the one thing that they do which i thought is exquisite is that against each of the different kind of uh, speakers let's say you and i you can add the speaker avatar a photo in a little kind of circle um dimension which we know so well from social media which means that when you read or even follow along as you listen to the to the uh, to the audio you can tell not just that it's roger talking because of the uh, copy your name but there's also your photo against it and it does that obviously automatically and i just thought that these are the kind of solutions that can make a big big difference to podcast promotion and i almost wish you could have the same for written form as well as video form again this is all about keeping it simple isn't it and making it easier for people to find you and easier for people to consume your content and whether by desire or design uh accident or design we we've we've got that decluttering and that simplicity theme running through this show today uh and yeah these are fabulous discoveries pascal and again as podcasters we get excited about this but the bottom line is it's helping people who like to consume our content it's helping them giving them an easier time of finding our stuff and we've really got to celebrate that 
Absolutely. So, you know, I would be road testing those two options. But if you're listening and, and watching this and you are also already using them or about to use them, let us know your reactions and your views. But don't forget to send us your recommendations and suggestions. You could either do it in the socials or through speakpipe.com forward slash two gigs and a marketing podcast. I'd like to also look back at why we are where we are, Roger. We say mm-hmm. it Every single time we are in this position because of the vision and the hard work of pioneers and visionaries of the recent and distant past. Let's move on to This Week in History. In 1937, while landing at Lakehurst, New Jersey on its first transatlantic crossing of the year, the German dirigible Hindenburg burst into flames and was destroyed, killing 36 of the 97 people aboard. Wow. Well, in 1961, Navy Commander Alan Bartlett Shepard Jr. becomes the first American astronaut to travel into space aboard the Freedom 7 space capsule. Three weeks later, President Kennedy announced the goal of landing a man on the moon. In 1997, the fifth element Directed by Luke Besson and starring Bruce Willis, Mila Jovovich, Gary Oldman, Chris Ticker and Ian Holm premieres at the 50th Cannes Film Festival. It was the most expensive European film ever made at the time of its release. And in 2004, the final episode of the television sitcom Friends aired and was watched by more than 52 million viewers. The series ran for 10 seasons, Roger. That's 236 episodes between September 94 and May 2004. That is consistency of content there. Absolutely. Absolutely personified. <laughs> As a note to our viewers and listeners, you'll have noticed how we chose to title our episode is because Roger and I are big fans of Friends, so it is always the one about. <laughs> the one about, absolutely. I, I couldn't believe, actually, that the last episode of Friends was coming up for 20 years ago. Uh, how scary is that? And there's always been talk of a of a sort of revival of it, and I think they probably shouldn't do it, to be perfectly honest, but maybe it would be interesting to see what would where their lives have ended up all these years later. Now, I want to quickly mention The Fifth Element. I absolutely mm. adore this film. When it came out, I went to see it three times with different friends, but I had no idea. But that makes sense when you think about the production, that it was the most expensive European film ever made at the time. I mean, some of the costume set design, the technology, the special effects and so on. But the story is delightful. This is a proper family movie, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's another of those classics. And, and I'm sitting here reading this as a news item thinking, how is it that we've never talked about it in film marketing? And, and I expect that we'll probably remedy that quite soon. <laughs> I mean, it was huge. I remember uh, the marketing very quickly, the coverage at Cannes, and people were looking either with the set design, either with the costumes, with the Jean-Paul Gaultier. Um, it didn't do so well in the US because I think it was a bit too wacky for them. Yeah, it, it was a little bit like that. It was a bit Python-esque in a way, wasn't it, I guess? Well, they were using also very European um, artists, Jean-Paul Gaultier, I mentioned a moment ago, but you had Morbius, which was the graphic um, mm-hmm. kind of novelist, that they used all that kind of, I thought Luc Besson put his heart and soul into this one, but you know, as a French director, he would have had that influence coming through. So, and, and critics, including um, some of the critics in the UK, said, oh, we're not sure about this movie. But families went, people loved it. Um, 
yeah, had everything. It was a love story. It was a comedy. It, was, it, was, it had action. The kind of the alien, the monsters were, were very, very well realized. And Gary Oldman was just so, so good as the villain. And, and Chris Tucker playing, uh, you know, one of those kind of DJs and TV presenters was just hysterical from start to finish. So not huge fan. And yes, I think we just talked ourselves into reviewing the marketing of The Fifth Element here. Yeah. And the the other news item that really stuck out to me this week was the, the one about the Hindenburg. And I don't know about you, Pascal, but there's the, the Hindenburg's got that same sort of notoriety notoriety for me as the Titanic. It was a it was a disaster involving effectively what was a passenger vehicle, Titanic being a ship, obviously, and the and the Hindenburg being this gigantic airship. Um the German airship, you know, and 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 they are the they're quite an iconic thing, aren't they? And you often see them in science fiction films. I was watching something the other day where, which was set in a um, an alternative universe, and they had airships in the uh, in the sky. And there's just something sci-fi about airships, even though we're talking again nearly a hundred years ago. And the fact that the destruction of the Hindenburg was actually captured on film at the time because all the news cameras were there at the uh, docking place seeing this airship come down and of course it burst into flames and 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 the shocking thing about it is is how quickly it was consumed i mean you're talking literally less than a minute the whole thing just went up in flames it's a miracle that you know um all of the people on board weren't weren't killed in such a disaster but such an iconic image and again i you know had that not happened i wonder whether aviation today would have been a lot different and whether airships would have become more mainstream and more acceptable or maybe it was the fact that they were actually very slow weren't they like it took longer to go across the atlantic on an airship than it did on a boat they were very very slow and i guess you could never compete against concorde or against a boeing 747 but again there's just something almost sci-fi about airships i i love them to death there was a film made of the hindenburg where they effectively grafted that uh footage into the end of the film and i, I remember and yeah mm-hmm. I, I seem to remember it was a pretty dire film actually so i suspect we won't be using that one in film marketing but you can't get away from that those iconic images of that dreadful disaster i, I believe the footage now become public domain and but I know it so well because it's been shown, but also it's so so dramatic and the speed at which the whole thing bursts into flame and, and literally is consumed. But you're right about this desire by uh, us, you know, to claim the, the air and and mm. and space. You know, is this the even more so than I would say the world of um, water and the oceans and the, the the depth and so on. And maybe it was part of the many attempts of you know how do we do this? How do we claim uh, air travel? And mm. you have to have some failures along the way to find what's going to work for you, sadly. Yeah, I think that's a that's a really insightful um, thing to say. Well, on that, let's get back into the present with the creators' shoutouts. Okay, Roger. So, whose work would you like to give a shout out to this week? Well, Pascal, this week I was delighted to find myself being tagged into some social posts from Making Sang. Now, I have given Making a shout-out on the show again 
quite a while back in the history of Two Geeks, the marketing podcast. Now, for those of you who don't know May King, she is a FOMO creator. Fear of missing out is, of course, um, what FOMO means. And she helps people mainly running conferences, to use social media to create that FOMO effect for the conference. Now, to be perfectly honest, she's the first person in the world to start doing this sort of thing. And since then, of course, other people have have, um, started doing the same sort of uh, approach. But I've always said to May King that you need to play upon the fact that you are the original FOMO creator. And she's taken that on board and often credits me with encouraging her to to use that line. And I was delighted to this week, as I say, to be tagged into her social media posts from a conference which was taking part in was taking place in Dublin. It was called the Kickstarter Conference, arranged by uh, Louise Brogan, who's who's had a shout out on the show before as well. And she was the closing keynote, and this was her first keynote wow. speech. And she very kindly tagged me into the post and said, you know, thank you to Roger for encouraging me to keep pushing this line that I was the original, the one and only. I have the, the joke about the Chesney Hawks song, where I am the one and only FOMO creator. So I was absolutely delighted, not only to be tagged into the social media post, but to see making as the closing keynote speaker. Fabulous achievement. And I just want to give um, making a great big round of applause for becoming that key figure that she's turned herself into. How wonderful. Now, I think it's so well-deserved. Thank you very much. So for me, it was a pleasant surprise that for once, the LinkedIn algorithm did do his bit for me to keep track of what my friends are up to. I don't know about you, Roger, but sometimes I'm frustrated because via social media, I don't get to hear enough from people that I would say are close to myself and you. So the shout out is for Amy Woods, a good friend of the show. If you don't know Amy Woods, she's the the go-to content repurposing expert and the owner of Content 10X Agency. And the news that I'm absolutely delighted to share with you, which I spotted on LinkedIn, is that Amy launched a new podcast series entitled mm-hmm. B2B Content Strategist. So two things, we have the word strategy in there, we have the word content, and B2B. These are my three favorite subjects you know, that we can think <laughs> of. Now, the B2B Content Strategist is new, and the reason why I wanted to kind of highlight it is that you could always find something new or a new way to explore your favorite subject. And Amy does that so, so well. I don't know about you, but I'm always amazed how she can always find new ways to explain repurposing or new ways to repurpose your content. It's an absolute delight. And what she's going to do with this new series is just look at how leading B2B marketers execute on their, their content content campaigns. She'll be looking at the tech, be looking at you know process, be looking at how they overcome challenges like time limitations and, and more. And what we're going to expect from her, therefore, is some very practical conversations. But I love the way it it's clearly about B2B and it's about content strategy, which I think is wonderful. The very first one, the very first episode, I believe, is live now. And she's talking to Content Cal, a wonderful platform for content creators, the director of growth, Andy Lambert. So two things. I'm delighted that Emmy Woods is still finding ways to explore her favorite subject, but delighted that she's also launching a podcast dedicated to the B2B, which is my favorite, well, my kind of uh, bias towards um, trading and commerce, but also that it's about content strategy. 
Yeah, and a salutary lesson here. Again, Amy, as you said, is so good at continually putting out content about a subject which you would think on the surface of it you could exhaust in a few mm. episodes and yet she's been doing this for many many years now she's written a book about it she's got the other podcast and as you say hats off to her she keeps on repurposing and proving that repurposing never ends super now roger edwards it is time yes. for film marketing wow Now, this is a fine addition to the film marketing segment, a sci-fi movie that took place and was released in 2016 following a four-month marketing campaign. But to begin with, let's watch the official trailer from Sony Pictures. Hello. Asking me on a date? She didn't seem that impressed. Wow. You clean up pretty good yourself. You two look fine this evening. We're on a date. Very nice. Took you long enough to ask. So, why did you give up your life on Earth? boarded the Avalon with a destination. 120 years hibernation means we'll wake up in a new century on a new planet. But a year ago, everything changed. Hello? Anybody here? Hello? Do you know what's going on? Nobody else is awake. I think something went wrong with the hibernation pods. We woke up too soon. 90 years too soon. This can't be happening. We have to go back to sleep. We can't. I watch and saw this film very late. I'm going to say 2020. What about wow. you? Um, I didn't go to the cinema to see this. I seem to remember that the first time I watched it was actually on an aeroplane um, going to Spain or, or, or something on holiday. And it came up on the um, in-flight uh, movie system. And I thought, oh, I haven't seen that film and I watched it on the plane and as soon as we got back home went out and bought the blu-ray. 
So we're going to spend some time looking at the different facets of the marketing campaign. But to begin with, um, we try where possible to talk about a film marketing campaign without any spoilers. But I think on this occasion, we're going to have to just talk about the film and reveal a lot about this story and the different elements. Otherwise, we're going to have to, you know, have um, have to forego some mar- the marketing elements. So for me, my memory um, is about the incredible set design that is almost wrapping of the story, but also the spacescape, because on occasion, the, our two heroes are stepping outside, which is most incredible. I mean, I don't think I've seen a movie quite like this, but there's also that we go into the very, very focused element of the interaction between the two of them, the, the robots, some of the other kind of um, members of the, um, of, of the ship. And it felt almost a combination of thriller Maybe horror as well. One to realize what is happening, um, adventure, a love interest, and so on. There was a lot of kind of story styles mixed into one. Yeah, I mean, as you say, it it's gorgeous. The design, isn't it? The spaceship, both inside and outside, was was just remarkable. And cute little robots as well. Beautiful apartments to live in, and the and the the. the communal areas of the spaceship were so well realized you know and and all seemed to work didn't they i mean again to me it was almost like three styles of film you know the first the first third of the film where chris pratt's character is effectively on his own on this gigantic spaceship felt to me as if a, a little bit like castaway you know he was on his own he was trying to find a way to escape then you've almost got a rom-com on a spaceship in the middle of the film when uh, Chris Pratt and Jennifer Lawrence come together and there's a lot of interaction there and the story develops. And then I guess the final third of the film is where the, the ship starts to um, starts to break, is in danger of exploding, is in danger of crashing, and, and they have to fight very, very hard and through some very thrilling sequences to actually fix what's wrong with the ship. So definitely think it's it's helped by those those three distinct segments i don't know whether that was intentional that's just the way it came through to me whilst i was watching it i've got the feeling that rule three was used throughout um, yeah yeah the, the production but also that the marketing when we talked about in a moment the poster but if i take it back to the trailer um we don't do this often, and but it's always enjoyable to study the trailer. And if you look at it and go through it again and again and again, you'll notice that there's almost um, so the trailer is about you know two minutes thirty, so the hundred and fifty mm-hmm. seconds give or take, and it's perfectly the first fifty seconds is actually setting up the love story allegedly, mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. the second set of 50 seconds about the problem the challenge of we woke up too early what do we do about it and then the third yeah. one is actually the disaster and literally um life in and peril and i think mm. they kind of used that over and over again the three elements and yes. suggesting well you you we're going to surprise you we're going to really take you on the journey here yeah i i, I think that is is masterful, isn't it? And and again, the rule of three works in all sorts of scenarios. Humor, uh, and, you know, uh, putting together a presentation or a talk, you can use the rule of three. So it is very clever how they they wove that not only into the the structure of the movie, but they reflected that in the trailer as well. And I, and I think there's enough in the trailer as well to showcase the beauty of the design, oh, you yeah. know, to, to hook people in. But I think if you actually look 
at the trailer alongside the posters, you also realize, don't you, that they really, they really capitalized on these two really quite nice looking um, stars. Let's, let's face it, <laughs> Chris Pratt, Jennifer Lawrence, very nice human beings to look at. And effectively, the first poster is just a photograph, very, very um, nice photograph of both of them with the word passengers. There's nothing in that poster at all, really, to suggest that it's a science fiction film. Um, you know, you couldn't necessarily glean from the title passengers that it was a science fiction film. It could have been a a, a film on a Hindenburg airship or an aeroplane or a ship, uh, a, a sea sh- ship as opposed to a spaceship. Um, and, and that, I think, absolutely uh, highlights the fact that the, the um, studio knew these two stars themselves could sell this movie without having to reveal anything about the plot or the story or the set design or the other things that go up to make the movie. In fact, I I want to read out this quote because I think it's great. It's John Boone of Entertainment Tonight said, the advertising campaign for Passengers has essentially been, we know you like Chris Pratt. We know you like Jennifer Lawrence. Well, here they are together. You're welcome. (laughs) And that's it. You know, that's it. That's very good. And listen, for me, it almost feels like old school cinema. You know, that's what the Hollywood of the 50s and 60s did. And and one shouldn't be feeling like rolling your eyes, thinking, oh, we go again. If we go back to the rule of three, actually, about the the posters. So as you described for our uh, podcast listeners, you've got Jennifer Lawrence, almost top third, you've got Chris Pratt, and then in between, separating. I think it's very, very telling because, once again, I love when you can go back to the artwork and to the trailers after watching the film and you get more information because actually Mm -hmm. we realise that this is not about love between them, this is actually about the tension and the fact that, you know, for a while they, they go their separate ways. But in terms of hinting what the style of the film might be, they show some very, very kind of sci-fi-ish calligraphy for the word passengers. As we've seen before, for example, the letter E, to me, reminded me a bit of Alien, you know, the way they did the, the title there, and the A, where they remove the horizontal bar, so you end up with a pyramid, almost like in Death on the Nile that we reviewed. But also, so you have the um, the actors, you've got the calligraphy, but can you also see what is below Passenger Roger? I'm having a look now. Christmas 3D. Now between passengers and Christmas, then. Oh, the the three dots, the three dashes, and the th- oh, it's SOS, isn't it? It is SOS. Morse so, code. So either you spotted before watching the film or after, and you get the Morse code. And in fact, if you watch the trailer again, all of you, the very final sounds that you hear are the SOS being sent, obviously oh. by. Uh, characters. So you, there's a link between the trailer where the SOS is heard, three dots, three dots, yeah. three dots, and of course it is present, but almost could be missed completely the first time around within well, I the it. poster. <laughs> I missed it until you told me just then. That's absolute, that's, absolute genius. <laughs> that's what you get for being a film nerd. Now, if you have the poster in front of you, any of you, or I'm going to ask Roger, can you zoom in, if you can, onto Jennifer Lawrence? and look at the reflection in her eyes. I'm not going to be able to zoom in um, much more than I am now, but I'm ta- I'm, I'm going to guess that the reflection in her eyes is something to do with the spaceship. 
Indeed, she's looking to the the cosmos and and that kind of things. If you zoom into the eyes of Chris Pratt, the character, you will see that instead of having almost this cloud effect of the light, it has two horizontal lines, line effect, which is essentially the pod where the character Jennifer Lawrence is sleeping. Because, of course, if you know the story, he's been staring at her and almost you know, spending time with her while she's in a pod for an entire year. Wow, again, I didn't know these things, Pascal. You've really, really opened my <laughs> eyes a bit there, no pun intended. And and the second poster that came out later did uh, finally introduce a little bit more. Now, my initial take on the original poster was there was nothing in it to suggest science fiction, but you've blown that completely out of the water by pointing out the reflections of their eyes and, and the SOS thing. But the second poster still has great photographs of the two stars and they are still the focal point of the poster but now there's a great big beam of light between the two of them and within that beam of light you actually do see the spaceship and it bleeds out at the bottom into a, a spacescape you know the constellation the stars and everything so it definitely tells you this is a sci-fi movie now having said that i still think they're playing mainly on Chris Pratt and Jennifer Lawrence as these two beautiful stars of this film to, to suck people in. They are indeed, and, and they still, now that you can read the poster differently after watching the film, it still suggests to me more like conflict and separation than, mm. you know, kind of the love story. Um, I mean, honestly, this movie is so, so good, and I wanted to quickly mention um, something else, which is the way in which I reacted, literally like jumping out of my seat when um, the character of Chris Brown, which is Jim Preston for memory, goes to the bar, yeah. and is ordering the drink from uh, Michael Sheen, the robot Alpha. I mean, did you see the connection with another film immediately yourself? Oh, yeah, it's The Shining, wasn't it? Straight mm -hmm. away. Um, I, I, I remember, I, as I say, I watched this on, a, on, a, on an aeroplane, <laughs> and when, when we, when we, go, when we um, go on holiday, Patricia and I often watch the same film, on the aeroplane i'm sure i must have tapped her on the um, shoulder as we were watching this that looks like the shining scene of the uh, the barman in the shining so definitely knew what they were doing there now you and i've done a fair share of reviews of websites and social media and so on but this is actually 2016 where people could travel and go places so what else did they do uh, in terms of you know doing the, the physicality of traveling and going to different venues well, they, I mean, to be perfectly honest, the website's gone, the social media oh. is gone, uh, there's nothing left. Um, the, the, the website, I believe at the time, had a, a become a passenger feature, which was actually basically just to give us your email address and we'll send you a load of stuff about the films that we're making. Uh, you could also send a message from the stars, which was almost like a, a mini game for mobile phones. And they did do a zero gravity sweepstake competition to, to actually win a zero gravity date where you and a partner would be taken up in an aeroplane. It's one of those aeroplanes where they dive down from about 50,000 feet almost nosedive to create that uh, that weightlessness which uh, <laughs> sounds really quite scary to me but I, I i think one of the things that really stood out for me i mean they, they did a they did cinemacon in april 2016 which is you know it, it, 
it's pretty pretty uh, standard fare. But the media tour that they undertook where Jennifer Lawrence and Chris Pratt effectively went out and were interviewed on chat shows, news shows, just about every sh- single show in many, many different countries for about three or four months. They were just out there being interviewed constantly is perhaps the biggest media tour for a film I've ever come across in any of the research that we've done for two geeks in the marketing podcast they were they were on everything pascal um, you know tv they were on youtube they were on all and any any media show on any platform they were being interviewed on it and and it's interesting again you can see that they're playing upon the fact these two highly bankable stars very beautiful people being interviewed together obviously is going to be a draw to that show but it's interesting as well. If you go on the internet, onto YouTube particularly, and start searching for things like presentation skills or how to engage with people, how to start a conversation with people, Jennifer Lawrence consistently comes up as an example of somebody who is has got a very engaging style of presentation. And that's why people like to interview her. She tells lots of really good, short, but very engaging stories. She knows how to ask questions back of the interviewer, presumably to make the interviewer feel more relaxed. And she comes across as being somebody as you can just have a great conversation with. And I, and, and I was intrigued by that because if you search for presentation skills videos whatever it is quite often you'll find clips of jennifer lawrence talking about this film as an example as to how to be a good storyteller as an example as to how to be an engaging person and that's quite a subtle link to the film but really strong one as well i think and listen, we are using this segment as a source of inspiration for marketers who want to become better storytellers or filmmakers who want to be, become better marketers. So this is a perfect uh, kind of um, combination of the two. For me, what was interesting about the media tour, you're right, it was it was long, which suggests incredible planning. Like, you know, if the, the media tour started in, in the August, September 2016 for a Christmas launch, which we'll come back to, in fact, that means that that was planned in you know the winter the previous year because you've got to book the slots, even though people jump the occasion of talking to Chris Bass and Jennifer Lawrence. But it's also the, the range of interviews. So they even had one where they took part in the Radio 1 playground insults. Do you remember that one? Yes. It wasn't, it wasn't yes. a version where you have to drink water and keep it in your mouth and not laugh to and spray water in a face. But literally, you know, you had Jennifer Lawrence and Chris Pratt sat next to, uh, facing each other, almost like in a boxing ring, having to insult each other like kids do in the playground. And it's hysterical. And you can see how much affection there is between the two of them. But in the process, you market the film without even talking about the film by just taking part in games. But they also did solo shows. So um, in the UK, we were lucky to have Chris Pratt on the one show a very popular BBC program, but Jennifer Lawrence then took over literally the whole uh, Ellen in the US um, show as well. Uh, it's just fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, and again, another facet of the campaign um, is that they capitalised on influencers. Now, you and I have been a little bit critical of influ- using influencers in marketing campaigns on this show, but what they did with uh, Passengers is they got quite a few YouTubers. Now, the, the only one that I actually recognise is I, Justine, who I think we've talked about on the show before. She does reviews of technology and, and, and video and that sort of thing. She's got millions and millions and millions of uh, subscribers on YouTube, and they 
put these people into that zero gravity aeroplane that I talked about earlier, dive them down from 40,000 feet so that they're floating around. And they use those promotional shots. And, and that actually created, I believe, the campaign using the influencers generated 11.8 million branded impressions on Instagram and Twitter and resulted in over near and in, in over 1.8 million YouTube views for the, uh, the the trailer of Passengers and also later on for the, uh, the the Passengers DVD and Blu-ray. So I guess on this occasion, they use the influencers really quite well. And we've seen many examples. I will say that the best example you have come across are usually from the film industry, which is fascinating. I mean, I still remember how impressed we were with all of the rings marketing campaign and how they literally flew literally once again flew over people to new zealand uh, i mean quickly i've never had that experience of wetlessness but would you go ahead if you had the chance oh i'm not sure <laughs> i think we do have to talk a little bit about potential bit of controversy here uh, about this film and uh, I came across another article when I was doing the research for this that, that suggested that uh, actually the article was saying uh, the top 10 misleading my, um, advertising campaigns for films and Passengers is named in one of those to as, as a top 10 misleading marketing campaign. And what they're saying, Pascal, is that, and again, maybe it's just the fact that they're capitalizing on the two stars, but the the film trailer and the poster gives the impression that this these two wake up on this gigantic spaceship at the same time, and it's a mistake, and the two of them uh, have to deal with the fact that they've woken up early um and and in fact that, that it's just saying the on, on the poster doesn't it there is a reason they woke up and they're alone on this ship and it gives the impression that they're they're, they're working that out together and in and in the course of that they fall in love and then they have to um deal with this disaster of the ship potentially exploding towards the end what actually happens in the film of course as you've alluded to already is that chris Pratt's character wakes up first, has to deal with loneliness for a whole year, and then he decides, after a lot of soul-searching and agonising, to wake up another passenger to keep him company. And, of course, Jennifer Lawrence is the one. And, and now that you've actually said to me that in his in the reflection in his eyes is the pod that she's lying in, actually sort of reinforces that a little bit, that he's woken her up. And this article is saying that the marketing is very misleading because it gives the impression that the two of them had a choice in the matter, that, that they woke up. Um, by accident together, whereas in fact he took the decision to wake her up as well. And some people have been really quite critical of that, saying that he shouldn't have done it. And he was, you know, some people have even gone as far as to say that he effectively murdered her by waking her up, which is probably mm. a bit too much of a leap. Um, and it's an interesting one. I, I don't know. I, I, I don't particularly feel that I was misled by the trailer. But what I do think might have been more interesting just as a potential alternative marketing campaign was, you know, if you were in that situation, you'd woken up on a ship full of, you know, pods of other people. You, The agonizing decision of should I wake somebody up or should I not? Maybe they could have capitalized on that a bit more in the marketing campaign. Would that have made a more, would that have made the film a little bit more intriguing if they played that 
in the marketing and maybe maybe even if they'd played that in the marketing maybe people wouldn't have been as upset by the fact that he woke her up and i know a lot of people did get upset by the fact that he woke her up how dare he you know how dare he make mm. that decision for her maybe if they'd had that decision as part of the marketing campaign it might have avoided some of that controversy what do you think i've it's difficult for me because I I enjoy surprises. I enjoy being taken on the journey, to, you know, literally the escapism. And I think mm. this director did such an amazing job, including the production mm. team, that if it that been revealed as part of the trailer and all the radio talks and so on, it's almost a movie not worth watching anymore. Because yeah. you actually what you want is a conversation afterwards with your loved ones, your family and friends to go, my goodness, you know, what would you have done? Would you have forgiven him? not and um, whatever but also the conversation that i had actually with my wife denise was what if it was the other way around mm -hmm. what if aurora was the one to wake up first and falls in love with jim preston wakes him up would you feel differently suddenly you end up with this mm -hmm. weird conversation where actually you find yourself to be more forgiving of women committing crime than men which is i think <laughs> <laughs> absolutely absolutely delightful but that's the whole point and I think people should also remember, and I'm seeing this as a, as you are a hardcore movie fan, it's just a film. But it's just a film. <laughs> it's just a film. Uh, but for me, it had the nobility and the cleverness of an Arthur C. Clarke novel. Um, because sci-fi movies, what they do is they take actually uh, pretty, you know, kind of mundane uh, circumstances and situations in life and people and put them into the most extraordinary situation, which is the future, sci-fi, in this case, you know, space travel and so on, and ask the question, what would you do in that situation? Um, and I think that the movie uh, achieved that. I think that challenge, which is why maybe people were upset, was that it was a Christmas release, and it mm. is not a Christmas movie. Yeah, no, having heard your argument there, I absolutely concur. I think I, I'd almost convinced myself that maybe the marketing should have focused on the decision, but you've 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 taught me back round again. <laughs> I do think the conversations have to happen after you've watched the film, not before, because if you've not seen the film then you you may judge it before you've seen it. And I yeah, I do think that it's much more thought provoking and much more enjoyable just as a movie as it is, and such a gorgeous movie, so well designed, um, and so well shot that yeah, I think I think I'm I'm staying staying with my original position now that yeah, it's not misleading marketing campaign. It was absolutely the right way to do it. Yeah, superb selection again, Roger. I just wanted to quickly mention to people that you can tell how much Roger and I have enjoyed this movie. I'm going to watch it again now, but we're not the only one. <laughs> Passengers was nominated for two Oscars in 2017, one for the mm -hmm. music by Thomas Newman and one which is so deserved as nomination, Best Achievement in Production Design, because honestly, the... The inside and outside of that spaceship called Avalon, and we could go on about, you know, obviously the meaning behind behind the the term Avalon and the name, um, suggests that it had that um, kind of was received well by pundits and the peers, but it wasn't a success commercially in terms of money, uh, and I think that's back to that tension with regard to being a Christmas release. But my goodness, did they catch up with the Blu-ray and DVD sales afterwards? <laughs> 
I shall leave you with another kind of nerdy little comment. So people have been studying this movie and over and over again over the years, looking at links with legends, links with obviously uh, other movies like The Shining and so on. And somebody suggested that it's interesting that the um, in terms of people in the um, hypo you know uh, sleep pods or hyper sleep should I say um, pods, there are a, there would be a total of five thousand two hundred and fifty eight um, kind of crew um, members and passengers. And only two waking up. <laughs> if you add the number five two five eight together, you end up with the number two, which are the two passengers. And yeah. if the character of Jim Preston had not awakened Aurora, all five thousand two hundred fifty six passengers would have died because you needed two people to rescue them and repair the ship. Ah, you see, it all makes sense. <laughs> when you've got Pascal explaining the intricacies of the plot to you. <laughs> That's all right. That's what it takes to be a movie nerd. Everyone, this was episode 76. Thanks you so much, Roger, for being a wonderful co-host. For you as the listeners, thank you for your support. Please leave comments on the social and speakpipe.com. And to the next one, go out there, make sure your marketing is done right. I was Pascal Tantoni, and he was Roger Edwards. Mm-hmm.